This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. This episode contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Vibrant Raw Living. I'm your host, Victoria Madian. Join me on a journey of discovering your infinite potential. Today, I'm joined by the vegan Danielle. She's going to be sharing her journey to sobriety and veganism, which happens to pass through a period of time where she was active in the entertainment industry in Los Angeles. Danielle is currently a vegan podcaster with the Specialty Produce Network as well and has an engaging Instagram where she shares vegan recipes and inspiration. She's had an inspiring transformation and offers a unique perspective to an industry which many may have preconceived notions about. Danielle's experience reminds us all that change and evolution is possible when we set the intention in our hearts and take actions with the power of our minds. Hi, Danielle. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to have you on today. It's been Something that I've wanted to do is interview you for the past little while that we've been working together. So if you guys don't know, Danielle also has a podcast called Vegan Danielle with the Specialty Produce Network. So we're a part of the same network and she also helps out with some of the production too. So I get to see her a lot and it's always nice to have another vegan in the studio representing. So I'm so happy to have you here today. (laughs) Me too. Thank you so much for having me. I know I was talking before about wanting to do a little collab with someone Another podcaster that had something in common, and you are the closest match for me. Yeah, so. totally. <laughs> yeah this probably won't be the last collab. Yeah, so. probably not. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to introduce you to the audience and just have them get to know you from root to tip and understand kind of what helped shape you as an individual and where you're at today. So where did you end up growing up? So I grew up in a really small town. Um, the city's called Phelan with PH. It's over kind of near Victorville. A lot of people know the area as the desert towns on the way to Vegas. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in a pretty small town on a dirt road. We had a pig and chickens and you know, kind of a farm style thing. Nice. Um, and we didn't eat them. <laughs> they were pets. Yeah, yeah. And I went to a pretty small, well, actually really small private school. Um, it was K through eight and my graduating class was 34. <laughs> so it was really tiny. And from there, I went to a huge high school because the little tiny town that I grew up in, um, there was only one high school for about every 50 miles or Mm -hmm. something. So um, everybody from every town around went to the same high school, unless you were further than that. So um, it went from class of, you know, 30-something to freshman class of 400-something. Right. So that was a huge shock for me. And, um, yeah, that's a little bit about where you know, my beginning started. Totally. I mean, I can only imagine going from such a small, like sort of intimate setting and kind of understanding where your place is amongst that going from there to such a larger scale, especially during that age range is quite overwhelming. Do you feel like that kind of 
affected you at all? Was it like stressful or? You know, I was I was a sh- super shy kid. So, okay. um, and I also my parents got divorced when I was twelve. Okay. So there was a lot going on between right. late junior high and mm-hmm. early high school. Um, also, you know, my dad was a very heavy drinker, mm. and so that you know, before they got divorced, I, I don't know which was worse. You know, whether yeah. him leaving or him being there the way that he was. Yeah. And um, then going into high school, yeah, because when you're with your small little group of friends, right. you have someone there that can relate to you. You see the same person in every class because there's not like there was multiple teachers per grade. And um, then going to a giant high school, it's like you only get to see one or two of your friends. And a lot of these other kids came from bigger junior highs. And so it wasn't as much of a shock for them. Right. So. I was already kind of like the weird one out, like, you know, like I kind of felt like I was a little bit awkward and didn't fit in. And then that just totally enhanced it. So for sure. (laughs) Well, I feel like finding your place and finding that source of kind of self-identity in that process always in high school. I feel like I know that I've mentioned this on other episodes as well. It's kind of a sets up that first time in our life where we're starting to learn who we are and what we are and what we like and what we don't and all of that stuff really for the first time. And it's always something that continues throughout life. What happened for you after graduation? So I actually opted to graduate early. Um, There's an independent school that's not too far away from my high school. And um, because there was a lot of turmoil going on at home and I, you know, after my parents got divorced, my mom picked up a second job Mm -hmm. and she also went to school full time to because she was trying to, you know, make some more money for the family. And so she was never around. And it was just me and my little brother. Mm-hmm. And I just decided, you know what, I'm done. Like, I'm I'm sick of raising my little brother. I'm too young for this. I'm like, I don't like my parents. <laughs> you know, I just want to go. And I was super rebellious. And I felt like I was, you know, chained down my entire life. So it was time for me to make my own decisions. <laughs> and so um, I finished high school for that reason, because I knew it was important. Um, and I still can't believe some of the stuff that I did because I had a car at 15 because I started working when I was 13 and um, it was something that I had saved up for. And um, I, the reason I had gotten the car so young was because when I started working, I needed it. And then my grandma felt that it was best if I had one because there were a lot of fires up where I grew up, a lot mm-hmm. of brush fires. Okay. And so just in case emergency, right. when my mom was never around, she helped me get the car and then I paid her off as I was working. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I had a car at 17 and I had finished high school and I also had access to the internet. And that's kind of where it started because I went on, uh, I don't even remember what site it was now. I think it's probably something, oh, hotornot.com. It was one of those oh. old like dating sites. Oh, wow. Not meant for a 17-year-old. And uh, I went on there searching for a boyfriend to move in with. Or, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. And I met this guy who said he was 21 and he lived up in San Francisco area. And um, he said, well, why don't you just come up here and we'll meet, we'll hang out, whatever. And so I go up there and I find out pretty quickly that he's 31, not 21. So what kind of 31-year-old guy, because he knew I was 17, I didn't lie about him. What type of 31-year-old guy wants a 17-year-old there, you know? Mm -hmm. And at this point, like, I had already slept with him. And, like, I I didn't know what to do because I I felt like when I left my mom's house, I was like, I'm never coming back. Um, And so I was kind of put in this really shitty position because I didn't know whether 
I should stay with this creeper guy or like go back to my mom or just try things on my own. And so I decided that it would be best to just try things on my own. So I drove back down, but this time I drove to LA and I was still 17. And uh, I remember when I was younger that an, a friend of mine had an older sister that was a stripper. And she told me, well, I can get you a fake ID and, you know, you can go in there. Nobody would know. Nobody would even care as long as you have the ID. Well, I mean, this is me coming from a private Christian school. Right. I didn't have much sexual experience at all. And um, I was extremely shy. I wasn't nearly as developed as other girls. And it was like, it was the last thing I ever considered myself doing. Um, but at the same time, I didn't really know what my options were. Right. So I thought, well, you know, whatever. Let's let's give it a try. And um, so I went in with that girl, with the older girl. She was, I think, 22, 23. And um, she brought me a fake ID. The mm-hmm. name was Brianna. I don't think I'll ever forget. Oh my gosh! And she and it was the most horrifying thing in my life. Like I, I mean, at this point, I had never even seen a naked girl before. Like when I went to Christian school, we all had separate little locker rooms for yeah. changing, and so it was that in itself was a shock. And then seeing the way that those kind of guys act, right. that was something I wasn't used to either. And so it was really easy for me to make a decision to start drinking and, and using drugs pretty heavily. And uh, that was kind of, it's not it wasn't the first time I ever tried anything, but it was the first time that things were that accessible right? Um, and that common. And Did so, you feel like it was pretty heavily used within that community just yeah. to kind of like numb out and be like, People didn't really want that to be their reality, but that was something that they just ended up having to do because they ended up not having other options. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think I think you hit the nail on the head with that one because a lot of people, especially girls, can look into those kind of professions from the outside and think, oh, you know, stupid whores or, you know, all these kind of names that they want to call the girls and, you know, whatever. Each case is different. Yeah. But... In my experience, a lot of the girls that I worked with all had a story, you know, yeah. something like that. Yeah. It was like, the, you know, the average wealthy family doesn't normally have a girl that decides to just get up and one day become a stripper. Like, you know, unless she's just totally trying to rebel. Um, so a lot of us came from broken families. A lot of us had certain types of abuse happen. And it's almost in a weird way a sense of empowerment because it's it's like, it's odd because both parties are using each Mm -hmm. other. The women are using the guys to get money. The guys are using the girls for their own pleasure. And it's like, it's this game of who has more power. Right. And so as degrading as some people see it, like in a certain way, it's like, yeah, well, these guys are paying me to, you know, take off my clothes. Like, and a lot, you know, it's, that was the most money I'd ever seen in a really long time and I will ever really um, coming from such a, you know, small town kind of not poor family, but probably a little below middle class. And Mm -hmm. um, I just remember my first night, I don't know how much I made, but it was more than like a two weeks paycheck that I had made before. And that was without even trying. So it was really easy to get hooked for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just kind of went from there. Like, you know, I guess how you could imagine. I I ended up eventually once I was 21 working in Vegas and uh, I 
worked in LA and Vegas kind of at the same time. I'd fly out to Vegas Thursday night and uh, work Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, sometimes Sunday, and then come home after that. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, this is when I was, you know, 21, 22, I was maintaining pretty well. Um, I don't think a lot of people knew that I had an issue with drugs mm-hmm. uh, other than the people that I was, you know, that I used with. I felt like I kept it, I don't know, pretty hidden from people. I still, you know, I still went to school. I went to Santa Monica College. I uh, still looked decent. I also did a little bit of modeling on the side. And so we would go to like Playboy mansion parties and like all these kind of, we did like a Maxim thing and all these different things. And I felt like those kind of things, everybody kind of knew that everybody else was on drugs, but nobody really talked about it. Like Mm -hmm. it wasn't like the heroin addict on the street sort of drugs. It was like ecstasy and Coke and, you know, oh, those are the party drugs. They're okay. That's how it started anyways. (laughs) But I feel like everybody is just trying to be happy. Everybody's Mm -hmm. just trying to feel good. And put in that situation where you feel like you have no other option and you're doing the best that you can and these are the things that are presented to you, I can understand where that sort of feeling of desperation comes from and you want to feel happy you want to feel okay you want to feel like everything's good and not feel judged by anybody else so I can understand how even being in those environments allows you to feel a little bit more comfortable and and all those things that you went through you know and from my perspective too having known dancers in the performing arts industry and them wanting to pursue certain paths um, sometimes instead of education, it can mm-hmm. be very lucrative and very enticing when you're at that age, when you're in your early 20s. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that want to hire you because they know the position that a lot of young 20-year-olds are at. And yeah. especially with dancers, there can be a certain amount of desperation as well. Mm-hmm. You know, many of them have been training for a lot of years and Maybe if they haven't gone to school or received education, that's the one skill that they can do really, really well. Mm -hmm. But that's a very competitive environment. And I know, you know, some dancers get stuck in building up, you know, even if they get a world tour or something with an amazing, incredible artist and they travel around the world, that's a limited amount of time for them. You know, that's Mm -hmm. a limit. And you have to always think about what's coming next what can i build for myself because yeah. also being in the aspect of the entertainment industry which you were involved with you know i feel like sometimes performers unfortunately get used to build up a certain brand or a certain artist where this artist will go on to continue and do a lot of work and stuff and you have to think about what are you doing for yourself to keep moving yourself forward? How are you using this in such an aspect where you're going to continue to grow afterwards? Mm-hmm. How is it empowering you? How is it educating you? How are you building connections that will help you move forward in any aspect of that and treat it as a business? Yeah. And um, I think that when kids get so young, I mean, I know many choreographers and dancers that have gone on that have had success but they never finished college and maybe mm-hmm. were a, you know a couple quarters shy of graduating yeah. but they gave that up because it's either finish college or land this world tour or this mm-hmm. television show or this movie or whatever and so once that's done though 
what do you have? Like, what what else are you going to do and stuff? And so it can build momentum for a while. But I feel like it's always really important, I feel, to um, just emphasize to young performers in the industry and young people in general and just, like, there's always time. There's always time even when you're younger and you think, no, I'm not going to have more time after this and this is all that there is. That There's mm-hmm. always time to continue to succeed. If you really want to work within that industry, then you can work towards it and you can achieve those goals. But don't feel like, oh, someone else is getting ahead of me or compare your journey to anyone else's because there is always time for you to achieve the things that you want to no matter what you might be going through at that time. And I'm kind of learning that right now too, because I have since um, started school again and it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, I just turned 30 and well, actually not even just turned 30, but late last year I turned 30 Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I'm often one of the oldest kids in the class and it's like, you know, that's kind of sometimes that used to get to me. And now it's like, you know what? A lot of these kids, they literally either still live at home or just moved out and they're getting financial aid, which is something I don't get. And they have all these kind of benefits to where, you know, they're able to do that and good for them. Like that's, you know, I feel like that's ideal for most people. But at the same time, it's like, well, if I look at my mom going back to school in her 40s, so at least I'm not that old or at least I'm going back, you know, Right, at um, least you're going back yeah, for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of people, like you said, that don't. And I feel like, you know, when I first started out, it was definitely out of, uh, I felt a necessity. I mm-hmm. didn't know how else I was going to make any money. And thankfully, I didn't turn to walking on the streets or something, you know, a little bit worse. But um, at some point, it did become addicting, the, the money. Yeah. I mean, it went from homelessness to when I was 19, I bought a house on the beach. I had a Mercedes. I had a motorcycle. I had, you know, anything I could think of. It mm-hmm. was like, oh, I need a new TV. Okay, I'll go buy one. You know, it was like there was no thought of financial planning or anything mm-hmm. because every night was $1,000, $1,500, $2,000. And then working in Vegas, you can add a zero onto those. You know, it was like one night you're making as much as some people's cars worth, you know, it was insane and not really doing anything other than dancing on a stage. You know, it's like that I think for me was really the hardest, hardest thing because why would you ever want to leave that money? Why would you ever want to start, you know, something respectable? So, but how do you feel like that, um, played a role in shaping your self-worth during those years of your life? So because I already came from a place of not feeling extremely confident, like my mom is a very passive person. And um, I mean, just growing up in such a violent household, sometimes it's like the words were worse than anything else, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I already had a pretty low self-esteem. And so I think that's kind of where this, in a way, kind of helped me in the beginning because it was the first time that I had really noticed people noticing me, you know, mm, right. unfortunately it wasn't for the right reason, but you know, at the time I thought it was awesome. It was like when I, when I got some of those magazine things, like we had, uh, we did a 4th of July party at the Playboy mansion. And so it was me and a couple of the girls and we all took pictures dressed up and it was like an exclusive invite only. And they posted on their website. And so, uh, when MySpace was big, I'd, I don't know, something like a half a million followers. It was crazy. Or friends, I guess they called them, mm-hmm. which I've since deleted because it's like, you know, I don't want people finding that on there. But that was how I lived my life was that validation was like, oh, 500,000 people think I'm hot or like, you know, whatever, like something about me. And I remember there was one point in my life where 
that hit me and was like, I have no real friends. Any of my mm. friends are drug dealers or drug users or, you know, somebody that I met along the way. And um, nobody was really anybody I could count on. Often those people stole from me. Like, I was very lonely, you mm. know, with yeah. that, you know, the social media can put on a lot of lies, you know. Totally. And uh, I think that was probably one of the hardest things to face was reality. And um, I actually, when I was 20, I had, uh, I used to ride motorcycles and I got in a pretty bad motorcycle accident. I was hit by a semi truck up in LA and up in the canyons and um, he ran over my foot and I was wearing boots, thankfully, but the, he stopped and the tires like ripped off the top of my foot. So it was, it was crazy. I had boots on, but they ended up having to do a skin graft. I was airlifted and I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And then after that, I was in a wheelchair and like all this rehab and stuff. And, uh, during that time was thinking, you know, like all, I was just with myself all the time. I lived alone at the time. And I, um, it was the first time that I'd ever like taken a pause because my life yeah. was so go, go, go. Oh. And so, in addition to not being able to walk, like all these things start coming into my head. I start questioning my childhood and like, mm -hmm. you know, I had some sexual abuse happen when I was younger. And so all these things start coming into my head and it was one of the worst depressive parts of my life I've ever had. And so of course, you know, I'm also prescribed um, painkillers. It was Oxy. First it was Percocet and then it was Oxycontin. And so those were being abused as well, mm -hmm. along with alcohol and Xanax and whatever else was around. And that's what kind of... That's what started the first bit of not maintaining anymore. Like until that point, I feel like most people, if they didn't know me too well on a personal level, wouldn't really suspect I was getting into too much trouble maybe besides drinking. But I kind of feel like at that point is when people started noticing a big difference. Um, so that was really hard too. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, you use more and drink more to try to cover up these feelings. And then, you know, more stuff happens because you're drunk more. And, you know, and so that I just put myself in a position to be hurt again, you know, over and over again, whether it was with men or girlfriends or, you know, whatever. It was just like this constant cycle, which just kind of reinforces the thoughts of like worthlessness and depression and all these like things, right. conditions, I guess you would call them. Totally. So... Moving past that, I mean, what really helped you get through that time and eventually get sober and clean? And what was that point where you were like, this is not working anymore. This has to stop and it has to stop now. You know, I'm stubborn. <laughs> and there was a couple of points in my life that should have told me that. Like at one point, um, how I lost the Mercedes was somebody broke into my house and um I got thrown in jail for something that wasn't me. Thank God it got cleared, but I got accused of something that wasn't me. I was in jail. The guys that accused me then broke into my house, stole my car, uh, crashed my car, and then ran. And so it was a hit and felony hit and run. Um, and they ended up coming after me to, you know, to go to jail. Well, I have proof I was in jail when this happened. It's like, obviously, I didn't get charged for that. But um, the insurance on my car had lapsed while I was gone. And so I was sued for um, a hit. Well, they took off the hit and run, but I was sued for the total damage of two cars. Plus, I lost my car. So each car, I think they, I think the total estimate was $50,000 of damage that I caused plus losing the car. Um, and that was probably the most devastating things for me because I knew 
that at that point I was going to lose my house. It was like, okay, well, I, I just got so depressed. I was over it. Like I was mm-hmm. at this point, um, the oxys had led to heroin and somebody introduced that to me and I just didn't care anymore. It was like, everything's got everything that I built up for so long of who I was, was just thrown down the drain and I felt so lost and so alone. And to be honest, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because right. at that point I was kind of forced. It was like either like there's not much further down I can go besides dying. And so it was like, well, my really only option is to try to go up. And uh, I remember calling my mom. Like at this point I was homeless. Like a couple months go by. I lost the place. Everything's gone. Literally sleeping in parks homeless. Like everything I had ever owned. I remember like carrying around with me a Christian Dior purse that I had from when I was dancing. It was like this $4,000 purse. And I just, I felt the need to hold on to it because it was the one thing that defined me. And the one thing that like still, you know, made me feel like I had something. And then I remember looking at it one day when I sobered up a little, I was just like, what the hell am I doing? Like I have this stupid super expensive purse that and I'm homeless I'm on the street I can't even sell it it's from two seasons ago you know what I mean like it was so it was such a realization for me and I finally um I went to somebody's house that I knew from before and called my mom and I hadn't talked to her in years and I just said you know I I need help and she didn't I don't think had any idea of how bad it had gotten she knew I wasn't sober because right. she she was informed a couple times I had OD'd when I was younger but um, she, she just said, well, I don't think I can help you and hung up the phone. And I'm like, oh, geez. All right. Yeah. So, and it wasn't her, like, I felt like it wasn't really her responsibility to help me. But at the same time, it was like, mom, you got to know this is bad. Like, I, I don't ever call you, you know? And I just felt even more, you know, yeah, I think I was totally. probably 23, 24 when yeah. that happened. Yep. Um, so it was like, oh, once again, mom, you know, you're just shutting the door on me. And that's, I felt like that my entire life. And part of it was me just being, you know, a stupid teenager. But then a lot of it was true. It was based on a lot of information. And so then, um, the one last person I could think of to reach out for help was my grandma. And I had never admitted to her my problems and I'm sure she knew, but I cared about my grandma more than anybody in my entire life. Like she was someone who I would never hurt, like never intentionally hurt. And I called her and was just like, "Yeah, I need some help." Like mm-hmm. you know, I just started crying and yeah. was just like, "I don't, I don't even know where to start." But I have no money. I don't have a car. I have nothing. And at this point, my grandma didn't drive either. And so she said, "Well, can you get to Amtrak?" And I said, "Yes." And so she's like, "Get to Amtrak. Come down here, and I'll pick you up in San Diego." And that's kind of where the recovery process started. Um, when I got to, when she picked me up, I just remember her crying and not even recognizing me. My mom was there, which I thought was really odd, but um, they were both just like almost in disgust, you know? And um, my grandma said, well, go to bed, you know, <laughs> you look like crap and we'll we'll talk in the morning. And so that next morning she was like, look, I'll let you stay here for up to two weeks and that's um entire like every single day you have to be calling detoxes and you have to get into some county funded program otherwise your two weeks is up and you I'm sorry you know and I I completely understand that because nobody knows what's going to happen with a drug addict or you know um and at that point I don't think I had the plan of getting sober because I had never really been sober since I was like 13 you know right um but And I didn't know how to live a sober life. But at the same time, I realized that that wasn't working for me. And so I thought, well, 
you know, I guess <laughs> I guess it's worth a shot because I don't really know what else to do. And so um, I think I slept for like two days straight <laughs> at her house. And when I woke up, I started calling the detox. And I think it was probably about five or six days later when I got accepted in. They, you know, they call every morning at like 5 a.m. And then finally they'll tell you, okay, you got accepted. Get down here in an hour. So I got accepted and it was to a program in downtown uh, San Diego. And um, after that, I spent two weeks in there. And then I went to a uh, more of a sober living type place for women. And I, I stayed there for about two weeks as well. Um, and I ended up leaving, not because I used or drank or anything, but um, it was so hard. I had never had any rules in my life. After I left my parents' house, like, it went from super strict to do whatever I want. Right. And so it was really hard for me to understand rules. Like, there's, especially in a rehab, it's more than, you know, normal. It's like you have a bedtime and you can't leave and you have no phone and, you know, all these things that I saw, thought were ridiculous. And, I mean, I understand them now, but at the time I was just like, get me out, you know. <laughs> um, and I had met my current husband, I had met him then. Uh, we were just friends at the time. But um, that's kind of where it started. Like, he had a year sober when we met. And mm-hmm. so it was kind of cool because I remember my first reaction when he told me he was sober. Like, I was kind of like, oh, my God, I don't know if I'm ready for this, you know. And then my other thought was like, well, if I want to be around him, I better at least pretend to be sober. <laughs> and so I thankfully did a little more than pretending and I was able to do it. Um, it was, was just really scary. a really nice support for you too. Just like, cause I feel like going through a lot of that, I mean, what it does to your brain chemistry and your body and your organs and all that stuff. I mean, it really messes with you on a physical level and it can affect you mentally so much. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, Probably that was very helpful for, I don't know, like, I mean, I, I feel like I'm kind of speaking for you, but was that pretty helpful having there, him there to be supportive towards you during that time where you were transitioning? I feel like he could probably understand. So there was a little bit of both. You're okay. you're definitely correct on one point. It was um, the first time I had really been shown by someone that you could live life sober because I was in such a delusion that like everyone my age got screwed up like maybe not to the same extent as me but I was pretty convinced that every 20 year old drank until they were drunk and you know all these things because those are the people I hung out with so and I, that is something that media really pushes a that lot too. is that like oh this is like living life is like partying and all this and it's mm-hmm. like well there's some other things that are fun to do also yeah. like <laughs> going to the park and <laughs> helping out animals and yeah I know it's unfortunately yeah and you know media also makes it known that like you have to be this tall and this color hair and this thin and all these kind of things and that's what all of us look up to you know and so there was a little bit of like you know a lot of it was him being super supportive and like having someone there but um I don't think he realized when we first met how much I had been through well I mean I didn't tell him right away so um, I had kind of assumed because he had been sober that that meant his past was similar to mine. Right. And that wasn't exactly the case. He did have experience with drugs um, by, and alcohol, but he, uh, and, and really the same drugs and alcohol I did, but he did them in such a different way. And it never occurred to me, like, I was the go out party, you know, VIP this, blah, 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 bottle service, all this kind of crap sort of girl that was like, oh, yeah, I'll sit next to this 40, 50-year-old guy just to, you know, because I'm making money off of it sort of thing. Whereas my husband was like the dive bar, you know, let's have a couple beers or maybe more than a couple and watch a football game. 
and then drive drunk or sort of, you know, and he did experiment with drugs a lot too, but our, um, our backgrounds were really different with that. And he didn't have much of a sexual past at all. And I didn't understand that because, you know, I unfortunately had a really long sexual past. There was, I think it was a lot to do with the whole validation thing. And, um, it was just like, I, I didn't really understand the whole men using woman thing. Like I just, in my head, it was like, (sighs) it almost felt like you were using them in a way because I would just like, I would never get attracted to them. I would never get to a point where it like felt good to me or something. Like I would just be like, all right, bye. You know? And it was such like a hooker type mentality, which I never was, but I felt like it was. I would never get attached to people, and I felt that it was a lot to do with, you know, my my family was really broken growing up, and I think I just kind of learned, don't get attached to guys because they'll just leave or, you know, whatever. And so when I first met him, he tells me after we had been together for a couple of weeks that he'd only been with one girl, and it was a long-term relationship, and I was like, oh, my God, like, that was super attractive to me and so different from my past that I thought, well, this is, you know, this will be kind of interesting um, unfortunately, like I did say too much about my past to him and, um, that was something that we really struggled with a lot in the beginning because anytime we would get into an argument, it was like, yeah, well, at least I didn't screw this many people, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't need to be brought up anymore. You know, like I don't, it's weird because people are really easy to judge and be like, oh, this girl's a whore because of this and that. And it's like, well, do you really know the whole story? Because, for me, I was so damn insecure and like trying to look to fill some sort of void. And unfortunately I used men to do that, that yeah, my past is not pretty at all, but I feel like people come from all different areas. And unfortunately that's a part of mine. And it was like when him and I first met, that's the last, well, even before that, it was like the last thing that I ever wanted to be near again. It was like, I'm never touching men again. Like I just, Mm -hmm. I want to be single forever. And then I meet him. (laughs) It's like, well, thankfully, he wasn't like, you know, I could have fallen into the arms of like any guy at that point because I was so broken and I was so like, you know, I don't know. Everything was so different for me at that point that I'm just really grateful that he happened to be a guy like that mm, and not yeah. like, you know, another guy that was going to try to use me or something. So um, that has been something that we've struggled with. Like I'd say that'd be the one negative thing about our yeah. different past. But for the most part, it's like. You know, if I'm going through something or whatever, he's usually the first one to be like, well, why don't you call your girlfriend that's also sober? Or why don't, you know, why don't you write about it? Like, he's really big on, like, writing, like, a little journal about things. And I think that that's super cool because I I have always been super um, estranged from my feelings. It's, mm-hmm. like, it's really difficult for me to cry. It's really, like, I'll, I'll get happy, but it's, like, when I see people like, oh, my God, I missed you, like, or with their parents, like, I don't I don't understand it. I don't have that connection with my parents. I don't have that connection with my brother. And even sometimes I realize, like, I'll do that with my husband where it's like, eh, hi, you know, like, it's like I'm already putting up walls in certain areas. So I think that's probably one of the biggest um, things that you're currently working through yeah. that you have worked through. I mean, obviously, yeah. but I mean, we all have those things where it's just there's this aspects of our personality. I know I have mine, (laughs) but um, I think that it's a beautiful thing to be able to come to a relationship where people are unconditionally loving towards each other. And I feel like it takes so much courage. It takes so much faith, so much love for another person to do that. And that can be really scary sometimes, Mm -hmm. but when it does happen and when it does come through, it's beautiful. And I'm really 
happy that you've been able to experience that with your husband and that that's something you guys continue to build together. And I feel like it influences our life with our relationship to ourself as well, because there's so many ways in which we can be really judgmental and hard on ourselves sometimes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can come from a place where, oh, well, I want to fix this aspect about myself before someone else tells me to do it because that's going to feel a little bit more embarrassing. Yeah. And then it comes into this super defensive or I know, I know sort of thing if somebody does say something. Totally. And I think that's probably been one of the hardest, like most challenging things for me is just accepting that it's okay if you're wrong. It's okay if, like, somebody's opinion is different than yours. Like, you don't have to do everything perfect. I felt a lot of that pressure growing up was, like, I'm the older sister. Parents are gone. I had to do the best I could to raise my little brother, which I was not equipped to do. And so it was a lot of, like, you know, just feeling this pressure of, like, do everything right. And thankfully, my brother turned out pretty good. You know, he's a good kid. Um, Not that, you know, anybody had any certain influence on that. But it's just it makes me feel good that he didn't go down the same path I did. For sure. Um, And yeah, that's still a growing experience for me today is just working on my own like character defects that I have is like, oh, maybe I handled that wrong or maybe I should have like thought about it before I was too quick to respond or like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of times I come across as being defensive and I don't even realize it. It's like, oh, I didn't even mean like if I if I correct somebody and I like they say something, you know, to me about me or something. And it and they're maybe incorrect about it, and they're like, "I say, oh, well, actually, blah blah." And then people tell me that I sound defensive, and I'm like, "Oh, I didn't mean to, you know, sound like I'm defending myself. It was more of just kind of I was trying to inform you." And then I don't also want to look like I think I know everything because I definitely don't think I do. But it's I don't know. It's so weird growing up. <laughs> like, like now I'm at the point where it's kind of expected that I'm an adult, you know. And it's sometimes I feel like I have these little immature pieces of my brain that didn't fully develop emotionally, you know, and so little things will happen and I'm like, wow, I'm acting like a 12-year-old, but... I feel like everybody goes through that. I don't feel like... I mean, when you think about it, nobody knows everything. Nobody's perfect. No one has grown up without making a mistake or having their heart broken or feeling like they messed up or that they feel guilty about something. Mm -hmm. You know, we all go through a range of emotions in our life and sometimes those are a attached to different circumstances some may be more extreme than others but i feel like for the most part humans do go through life and experience sort of like not such a enclosed path and like again things might not be the same experience as someone else's if they have a different upbringing or a different home life or what have you but there is still I feel like a place of compassion we can all hold for each other and just be like I see you for what you really are and not all of those things that are in your past and firmly in your past yeah Yeah, and firmly in your past because those things really don't define you yeah the fact that you've been able to overcome and get to the point where you are today and move past all of that and you know, build upon that in whatever way you have been able to, that's, I feel like, more of a show of people's character when they're able to do that and really more of a display of what people really are is just that ability to be resilient and move forward and mm-hmm. look at their past and be like, yes, this is my past, yeah, that but happened. it is not me. Right. Mm-hmm. It does not define who I am and what I'm capable of. And I'm 
happy to see that you did move past a lot of that stuff. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, having been in the entertainment industry during that time in your life, do you feel like as a part of your recovery that also aspects of judgment towards yourself in regards to any type of like body image mm-hmm. and that type of thing? Because working in that industry, your body's on display so much, yeah. you know, and there's a lot, um, you know, it's not it's it can be very vulnerable yeah you know you know I definitely like that I was already uh super concerned about weight and and eating and all those things before I even got into it I was anorexic when I was younger and I think a lot of that was me trying to control a situation when my parents would fight at home it was like well at least I can control the food I eat and it eventually turned into bulimia and like it was on top of that my mom was super like you have to exercise. You have to be skinny. Like she was so neurotic about that. And so right. that p- played a big part of it too. And um, so then, yeah, getting into the industry, it was like, you know, the girls that made money are the skinniest girls with the biggest boobs and the blonde hair. And so I did everything I could to look like that. It was like go tanning and bleach my hair blonde. And, you know, I look like a completely different person then. But um, it played a huge part. And I even remember, like, it was pretty bad when I first started. And then I kind of got used to the industry and, like, laid off a little bit. But then I, I remember even at 19, 20 years old, like, I had a boyfriend at the time who did not do drugs. Um, and he, he drank, but that was it. And um, he was nothing like my dad in that respect, like, as far as, like, putting me down or anything like that. Mm-hmm. He was not abusive to me in any way. But I remember... Like we would go out to a sushi restaurant or something and I would just go run in the bathroom and go throw it all up because I felt like I was too fat. And at this point, like I'm 20 years old, you know, like that shouldn't this. It was something that stayed with me for a while. And he like he never gave me any reason to think that. But I was still working in that industry. And so that was huge. And I think that's where the drugs really came in, too, was like not only are they an excellent way to escape, but uh, you don't eat very much when you do drugs. And so it became kind of like, I don't know, it was like a regular thing for me. Like in the beginning, it was here and there. And eventually it turned into like every morning and uh, definitely played a huge part in it. Mm -hmm. And even today, I noticed that too. It's like, I don't, uh, I don't pay as much of attention to it just because, you know, I'm married, I'm older, whatever. But um, it's something that affects me still. And I, I have to tell myself like, I don't just because I don't look like this girl or whatever, like that doesn't mean that I can't be attractive in my own way or, you know, like just feel good in your own skin and like realize that you don't have flaws. You know, I feel like when it comes to dealing with body dysmorphic thoughts or like having positive body image, I feel like it is something that's more and more prevalent now with social Mm -hmm. media just as to balance out like how prevalent a lot of other types of images are available on social media in regards to certain body types being more popularized. But I feel like it really does take an active, like it does take an active pursuit towards exposing yourself to that type of content around Mm -hmm. other women who are talking about their bodies and being like, I have cellulite. I might have a little bit of extra skin or like rolls on my stomach. Like this is what my body looks like. And like, I'm happy with how I look and um, just being comfortable with it and accepting it and being like, I'm not flawed. I don't 
need to buy into the culture that's telling me, oh, you need to fix this and that about Mm -hmm. yourself. I feel like I want to believe, and it might be a little bit naive of me to think this, but I really do want to believe that we are going into a more body positive culture. Well, I I think so. Yeah, because I think a lot of... The modeling industry, especially in Europe, there's been a lot of crackdowns on certain like weight requirements and like not allowing not only just promoting one type of ideal of beauty. And, um, you know, for me, it's like I feel like I kind of grew up like my mom is six feet tall, like I grew up really slender and like staying in um you know relatively good shape from like dancing and stuff and oftentimes like there were a lot of eyes cast at me being like oh like she's so lucky and all this kind of stuff and what is kind of something that a lot of people don't know is that like when I was growing up I was very skinny as a child Mm -hmm. and I would always feel like you know awkward because I was like oh like I wish I could be like you know more curvy Mm -hmm. and feel more feminine and stuff so Finally, I feel like when I went through puberty and, like, started gaining any type of curves, I was, like, so grateful. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> but um, but I still remember going through that time in my life and being like, whoa, like, my body's changing. Like, is this okay? Like, I know a yeah. lot of, you know, and I would be performing in front of, like, thousands of people in audiences yeah. and, like, you know, even at that young age. And it's something where you do become conscious and people are looking at you and you're yeah. like... Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Like I remember part of that being a really good source of confidence for me because right. I was like showing all of the things that I had learned and trained to do mm-hmm. and felt good about it and confident in my own skin and stuff and it was very practiced. Um but there are those times where you're alone by yourself mm-hmm. in front of a mirror or you know in that kind of very secluded space where it's just you and yourself and it's sometimes in those times where you're not getting feedback from people and that context of like am i okay am i enough is something that we end up in those moments having to affirm to ourselves and remind ourselves i'm not flawed maybe it's society's way of asking me to be different that's actually flawed and if I was able to accept myself, because it's true, like when people are comfortable in their own skin, which is honestly, I do really feel like it takes an active, like it takes work to make that available yeah. as a mindset to yourself. It takes practice and it takes repetition of repeating those things and reminding yourself, okay, every time I see this type of imagery and might get triggered to think like, oh, I should look like that or whatever, because I know that that is something that happens, you know, like when we see photos of other people and we think, oh, should I look like this or that? And it's like, we have to remind ourselves when I go into that mindset, that's a time where I have to remind myself, no, I'm enough. I'm beautiful. And go back into that place where we affirm everything that we are and we know that we don't have to change and that 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 conversation that's happening in our head is something that is enculturated in society Mm -hmm. that these industries want us to believe that we need something outside of ourselves in order to make us happy when at the end of the day you know at the end of your life you go you know 
you die with nothing. nothing. You know what I mean? You come to this world with nothing essentially and you leave with nothing. And all the things that we have in between that are, can be blessings to us. They can help us move forward. They can, you know, promote our self-expression and create more prosperity and share and be gifts to other people and lift people up and, you know, just as much the opposite, but it's our choice, what we choose to do with that time, what we choose to do with that, which, with what is available to us, but to not get attached to to all of it and know that it all is transient, I feel like is a very important part of the process. And our bodies will change the whole time, Mm -hmm. you know, like we will, different things are always going to be happening. And I feel like if we can approach that process with creativity and imagination and interest and discovery and curiosity that we can enjoy all those aspects of our our body changing and see how we can make the most of it over the course of our life and enjoy our life using the body which is given to us as a gift and a tool to reach whatever type of potential we wish to yeah and i i think that's really no i think it's really pretty how you said that because i I mean, one thing I've noticed is that, you know, I'm, I'll am i be 31 this year, and I am definitely heavier than I was before. Not necessarily that it's all a bad thing because I was too small, but um, I was— You look super fit and well, in shape right now. You. Like, I'm— <laughs> Thank you. Girl. Yeah, I'm like—I think—I don't even know what my size is because the thing is, like, they don't really make a size for me because my waist is, like, a 20s— I don't even know, 26 inches, I think, about my hips are like 38. So it's like, and my thighs are about the size of my hips. So it's like, I, I'm very, like, I have really thick thighs. My waist is not exceptionally thin, but it's just the ratio is off. And um, The ratio is off for who, though? Well, I mean, okay. it's like, see, for me, I have to say, I just have to interject quickly here because these clothing companies make the clothes for a certain type of model. Yeah. For me, being as like long as I am, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of times in like also having a little bit more muscle in my legs. Yeah. I might have, you know, a smaller waist, but then I have muscle on my legs, yeah. which I love. <laughs> but I go to a tailor and I yeah. say, I would like you to make this so it fits me. Yeah. I don't need to fit the pant size that the department store is selling. Yeah, no, that's a good I point. I make it fit me. This is so why you'll get your stuff tailored. <laughs> this is why you'll find me in stretchy pants almost every day oh. because stuff does not fit me. I need to find something that fits There's me. Solutions. The size. There's yeah. solutions. <laughs> you'll have to tell me where you go after yes. this. <laughs> I have connections. I'll make it happen for you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, what were we talking about? Yeah, well, because I feel like when you have clothes that even fit you you can feel confident about oh my yourself, god yeah because you know? that was one thing too when i i mean when i was out there i was tiny i was size zero size one most of the time and um when you know when i first came to san diego i came with a couple backpacks full of clothes and that was it and then when i was in rehab like we got donated stuff and so i mean i was the equivalent of someone living in a homeless shelter at that point <laughs> and um i it's not like we had clothes that fit us perfectly and so my first couple times going shopping was just like I first went for sizes zeros and ones because that's what I was used to, and I come to find out I'm like closer to a three or a four, and I it starts and I know you know some of the girls that are a little larger sizes might think oh my god three or four, but for me that was the biggest I had ever been in my life, and so that was huge, you know, and that was kind of depressing for me to have to like or go up to a size medium shirt when I've been a small my entire life or just little things like that that right. I just felt like man you know I. 
I also I have a lot of scars on my face from um, from acne from picking when I would be high or something. You know, I just sit in front of the mirror forever, and that was something that um, I numbed a lot. You know, towards the end, which just made it worse. It was like I would do more drugs to get away from the fact that I started losing my looks, and then those more drugs made me lose my looks more, <laughs> and so it was this downward spiral again. And so that was something when I first got sober, I remember because at at the end I stopped looking in the mirror because I was just like, I can't stand myself. And then I, when I first got sober and I'd been sober for a couple months and my husband and I were living together. And I remember like one of the first times I, I wore, I didn't wear makeup in front of him because it was like, I would wear it. I would put it on. I'd get it before him so he wouldn't see. And then I'd go to bed with my makeup on, (laughs) like so bad for your skin too, by the way. Um, but I never wanted him to see me without makeup. And then I remember one of the first times that I slept in and I woke up and he said something like, you look beautiful. And I'm like, oh my God, like, I just wanted to curl up into a corner and die. Like I felt like so exposed, you know, like I felt like almost my entire life I was living this, like, I don't really want to call it a lie, but a facade. It was like, this is me, everybody. You know, all my pictures were photoshopped. All my, you know, I'd always have a full face of makeup with black eyeshadow and blonde hair and extensions and nails and, you know, everything, (laughs) fake tan, you know, everything that you could think of minus plastic surgery. And, like, I, um, so having someone see me that vulnerable that was like, I'm, you know, 10 pounds of fat heavier than I was before. I, my hair is brown and growing out and all these like things that I considered imperfections was just like, oh my God, like nobody's ever seen the real me. And I felt like the real me was coming out. I don't Mm -hmm. know. It was kind of, it was kind of crazy. So now it's like, I'll go through these little spurts of like, not feeling good enough or like, you know, like it's really hard for me sometimes to stand in front of the mirror naked or like in bra and underwear or something and I know that I'm not fat or like you know there's definitely a lot worse out there but it's just like this little piece in my mind that I feel like is so hard this is the hardest thing for me mm-hmm. today is just accepting that like there'll be times my husband's like why why do you rush so quick to change your clothes after work or like you know because I'll go from this to pajamas like there's no like walking around the house in my underwear or anything like that I'm like I just feel like super awkward like I'm still I'm really awkward sexually I'm really awkward like with everything that has to do with that because all of those things in my life happened when I was high and I was drunk and like being sober and vulnerable and like having someone see your body and touch your body like that is just like (laughs) super uncomfortable for me it's very vulnerable yeah totally but I feel like it's a beautiful thing as well to be able to share like having that contrast of maybe almost forcing yourself into being comfortable with that because that was the predicament you were in now having an option to be able to share some those aspects of yourself with somebody who cares about you right your husband who's (laughs) like you know interested in that like you there's a i feel like such a healthy outcome from all that has happened and you know i I feel like it is something that all of us do deal with in Mm -hmm. one way or another and i think guys totally deal with it too it's much less spoken about but i think guys absolutely do it too there's a lot of ways in which you know, guys are held to the standard like they're supposed to look like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> yeah, steroids. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of ways in which people can see past a lot of those things. And I think there's ways to exercise and be healthy and take care of yourself and have healthy eating habits with it not being about calories, height, weight, yeah. size, shape, color, like all of those other aspects. It just like 
really health being the focus, but I feel like it can be a slippery slope Mm -hmm. when we start to get a little bit too hyper-focused on stuff. So I don't know. I think one of the things that's helped me and that I continue to go back to is just that checking myself when I start to go into that place. And and, um, I know doing some cognitive behavioral therapy type investigation in regards to that type of research and how you can kind of reframe things a little bit and mm-hmm. and just really question it be like really am i like no i don't think so and like just even think about how would it feel to think the opposite even if it feels like the biggest lie in the whole world how would it feel just for two seconds or like 10 seconds or a couple minutes to just really believe the opposite and really test that boundary with yourself and be like, you know what? My mind is telling me this, but my spirit is telling me this and I need to rebel against my mind because the the mind can lie to you, play tricks on you, tell you all sorts of things. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like it's always our choice. And I feel like sometimes it can be very easy to get lost in a lot of distractions that pull us away from what we truly are and remembering that we have that control over our thoughts. That is another part of your recovery. Obviously, vegan Danielle, (laughs) veganism entered into your life at some point. So what Mm -hmm. was that journey like for you? So um, after, let's see. So I came into came down to San Diego in 2012. Um, I went vegan in 2015, November 2015. Um, so three years after I came down here, and I I mean, like I said earlier, I grew up with animals. Like I, they were pets. Um, mm-hmm. I remember as a little kid, my neighbors had a cow. And I would walk my dogs down the street and I, I would stop by the cow and pet it. Like I named it Daisy. Like it, it just, so it was like my buddy, but I had no idea they were raising a cow for food. Like I didn't, I didn't understand that. And, um, one day I was walking the dogs and the cow was upside down with no head. And it was like the most horrifying thing for me. Like that was my buddy, you know, like it was terrible. And I remember coming home and just crying and like telling my mom and my my dad laughed at me and was just like, don't you know that's what cows are, you know, cows are food? Like, don't you understand? And then I just remember like a couple of weeks later, the neighbors donated a bunch of meat to us and my dad put it all in the freezer and I wouldn't eat it. Like I was like, no, like that was my friend. Like I didn't understand why we were eating her. And um, unfortunately, it took me a good number of years after that before I had ever made that change. Um, and it really... When I finally made the decision, it was so sudden for me. Like, I remember it was right before Thanksgiving. Um, I had seen, like, not even 10 minutes of Earthlings and a couple minutes more of Vegucated. Um, And I don't even really remember how it came across because before this happened, I remember, like, petting my cat. And I was like, I really like animals. I don't know why we eat them. And it just kind of occurred to me. Like, I don't think it really took anything to happen. And... At this point, like, I had been off of social media for years, and I had just created an Instagram account, like, just to, I don't know, even, I don't even know why. I wasn't even posting on there. And then um, I thought, well, I'm going to look up, like, vegetarian, you know, because I didn't really understand veganism yet. And so when I looked up the word vegetarian, uh, it came up as a hashtag, and somebody had put um, vegetated on there. And so it was on YouTube, so I decided to watch it. And I... Everything made sense to me. Like at that point, I was like, oh my God, like I felt like one of the biggest hypocrites that 
I'm that person saying I love animals as I'm eating a hamburger. You know, it made no sense to me why I, it never occurred to me that I could take them out. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I never wanted to harm animals. Why don't I just take them, you know, stop harming them? <laughs> and so that second, like I wanted to clear everything out of my house that had anything animal, like leather jackets, boots, like right. all this stupid material stuff. And that's where I think in a way it really like had a big shift for me too mm-hmm. um, because – yeah, I was homeless and all this kind of stuff, but I still, like, I had this delusion in the back of my head that I was that 20-year-old, you know, making $50,000 a month again, and it was, like, in my head that way, and so no matter, even though I went through a lot of suffering and lack of everything for a while, like, for some reason, I would, I was so delusional, and so I remember, like, one of the biggest things was all these little designer things that I had left from before. I was like, I'm never getting rid rid of these. Like, I had these Gucci boots that I guy gave me years ago and they were you know a couple thousand dollars and I'd worn them once and they were really uncomfortable and I hated them but they were Gucci so I kept them (laughs) so I remember right when I went vegan that was one of the first things I got rid of I'm like I don't even care about these stupid brands anymore like I don't care this doesn't define me anymore and it was almost like a new it was more than just the animals for me like it was almost like a new you know start it was like Let's cut out all these harmful things, including like the side, you know, the the health side of the animal of eating animal products, which I wasn't even aware of yet. I just, I just wanted to be like, I just kind of imagined myself as being this like tree hugging, like skipping through the flowers sort of. <laughs> that's what vegans were, right? You know, and, like yeah. walking a pony or something, you know. And I just, I felt super free. But then that should be a future photo shoot for you, like. <laughs> Yellow dress, sunshine, right? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I don't even really Come wear through dresses, with the skipping but... <laughs> in the flower fields. Well, Let's go. Kind of pony. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Um, and I after that, it was kind of depression for me because that's when I saw I really opened my eyes to what happened to the animals, yeah. and I was in shock that this stuff was legal in America. Mm-hmm. It was like. We put someone like Michael Vick away in prison for dogfighting, which I'm not saying I disagree with, but we've got hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of animals being beaten and murdered every hour. And it's like like, right now, like right now. And not only is nothing being done about it, but it's promoted. And so I, I felt like such a point in my life where I had felt so deceived by everybody. It was like my mom. I was mad at my mom. I was mad at the government. I was mad at McDonald's. I was mad at everything I could think of. It was like, why is everyone lying to me? Like, why why is this so hidden from people that, like, you know, now that I've done further research, it's like, you know, milk causes cancer. But the Susan Komen, you know, walk for the cure thing serves milk, like a program that's supposed to be. And yogurt on the yo play. Yeah, it's insane. It's like these things have shown to have carcinogenic carcinogenic (laughs) properties. And they're still, you know, they're still being promoted that way. And it came down, it like finally opened my eyes and was like money. Mm -hmm. This whole thing is about money. The more people they get hooked on these kind of things, the more, you know, they're keeping these customers for life. And then not only are they customers of the dairy industry or whatever else, then they're going to be customers of the pharmaceutical industry and the hospitals and all this other kind of stuff that's linked to it. And it was just this kind of like, oh my God moment, you know? I feel like every vegan has their moment when they just kind of like snap and they're like, getting rid of everything why is this happening oh my god why are you eating meat mom and dad like Stop! <laughs> yeah. yeah like you want to tell everyone and- right and then you just have to be like 
deep breaths. Because everyone thinks you're crazy. (laughs) Well, I think it it comes to a point where it's like you want to share the message, which is what you're doing now through your platform and in inspiring people through that way and like opening up a discussion about it so that we can start talking about no, like this is what's going on. Like this is what's not put on the advertisements and the commercials yeah. during your prime time television program. Yeah, you know, they're that, telling you to consume these things yeah. that are terribly terrible for you. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think, I mean, I know I can speak for myself that it's just been such an enjoyable journey yeah. to, um, you know, go down a path of just eating plant based foods yeah. and like eating fruits and vegetables and you know, the health difference. I know. Energy. Totally. Everything. I know. I agree, too, that it's like, even if I didn't care about animals at all, like what I've learned from, you know, just eating more plants is and, and just living this way, it's like I feel, I feel lighter. I have more energy. Like I just feel like I'm a healthier person. I know we were talking outside of here, I don't know, maybe a week or so ago about like I wanted to do more of like a whole foods, almost raw diet that was like, I don't eat a lot of processed stuff, but I'll have my little cookie treat or, you know, something that has been processed and packaged. And I've been really trying to do like mostly raw in the morning and at least whatever I have, you know, lunch or dinner is not, doesn't come from a can. It doesn't come from something packaged, just whole foods, you know? And it's kind of cool to me because you really physically notice it. You mentally notice it. Like, I feel like there's a lot of things that go into it and like, I don't know, it just, it makes me like every morning I've been going to the gym again. I'm like, I haven't done this in so long. I feel so good about it, you know? <laughs> but like probably now going to the gym with such a different perspective and yeah. like such a different feeling while you're working out, such a different feeling afterwards. Yeah. Because your body chemistry is so much more different now. I'm curious. I wish I, I had you know some idea of things that had changed, but I can't see it, but I know something exists. <laughs> well, and it's patience too. I feel like it's patience balanced with determination to see it like the and the consistency of it too that i feel like usually we're able to see those changes when we make that happen and sometimes the consistency is a little bit off and sometimes you know we get a little less determined or a little less patient and stuff but it's always just kind of like bringing yourself back to that mindset and remembering like just to be grateful for how far like you've come which is really far well i remember one time when my husband and i first met and um, we lived in, you know, the first apartment we had was a little tiny place. We have a house now, but it was not even one bedroom. It was a studio. And, um, you know, I'm newly sober, just out of rehab. He has a year something sober. We're both crazy. Like, I just started working this minimum wage job in Horton Plaza, which was crazy to me. I, it blew my mind how little money people made. Like, I, I was so delusional about that, too. But anyways, I remember one time he was, I just finished dinner. And he was doing the dishes and he goes, I have to do the dishes again. And I looked at him and I was like, you mean you get to do the dishes we have, you know, because and it was such a simple it was kind of a joke at the time. Right. And it just came to me out of nowhere. But we kind of talked about it afterwards. And and he was like, oh, you may have a point there, you know, and we had both kind of forgotten work because he was in a similar position as me. He came into a rehab uh, homeless. And so a couple years prior, neither one of us even had dishes to do, you know, and just. Those little things I think are super important, like not to get too cocky. It's like I'm I'm 
you know, I'm doing well in school. I love my job. I have all these kind of little positive things that are in my life. Like, you know, things are getting paid off on our list and all, you know, all this kind of stuff is growing. And it's like, that's the one thing that I have to remind myself is like, don't get over your head. Don't be too cocky. Don't forget where you came from. Don't like get caught into this downward spiral again because it's really easy to do. And um, I think balance is like going to the gym and and being healthy all around, eating habits, everything, that it really plays a huge part in like serenity and, you know, just balancing out the whole chemistry of your system. Yeah, yeah. it's really interesting to me. I would have called crap on that a couple years ago. I'm like, oh, whatever, that doesn't even exist. And now yeah. it's like I... I'm totally all for like the yoga and the meditation. I'm like, this stuff is cool. Totally, totally. Like, I mean, I know a lot of um, sober people that, you know, used to have a really, really heavy usage of drugs that I've practiced yoga with over the years. And, um, you know, I just, it's always really inspiring to me to see that because I know how strong drugs can be and how mm-hmm. much of an effect they can have on a person and how effective they can be at doing their job in regards to helping people just check out. Yeah. And um, it's always, I always feel like extra inspired when I see those people and I've been able to talk with them and I know a little bit about their past that it's like, wow, like they're living their life like without that and like this works for them so it must actually be doing a really good job for me too right you know what I mean right obviously everybody reacts to different you know activities and all that stuff different but like you know I feel like for for me when I practice like it's a really it had its times where it was a bit of an escape from life where it's just like gosh I just want to like go on my mat and like you know not really (laughs) a little bit yeah because you um you know I think it can be used in such a way where it's not healthfully being used I agree I feel totally and I feel like I even went through a period of my time where it was a major stress release but almost to a point where I have a pretty high pain tolerance, mm-hmm. and if you've ever like seen some of the like deep contortionist type postures that I would put myself in, it's almost like I was almost chasing the pain because when you put yourself, your body in a state of pain, there's natural um, like endorphins, and-, endorphins and like painkillers that kick in yep. to negate that pain that's physical, and it can help numb things that are emotional yeah. going on, which can't be numbed otherwise. And so, to a certain extent, I feel like there were times in my yoga practice where I was like, "Yeah, I've gotten really flexible. I've gotten really strong. Like grateful. Like I'm grateful that it led me to a place where I was, you know, healthier in aspects." for doing all of that work and I was you know it felt like I had achieved something more but at the same time I did reach a point where I was like it's okay to take a step back and maybe take a little bit of time off or like just go to class but not push as much and not as deep and just focus more on the meditative aspect Mm -hmm. of it instead of chasing for the depth and chasing for almost sort of like the escape that it provides and sometimes. I can totally relate to yeah. that too yeah. it's like just it started worse than that when I was younger but just little self-harm things you know and they would grow and it would be this and that but then I know that was one thing too is like part of me being competitive mm-hmm. too it's like I would go to a dance class or a yoga class or you know something at my gym and it's like I would 
be told kind of on a regular basis by people, like, you don't need to hurt yourself. Like, you don't need to, like, push this hard. And I think part of it was such me striving to be perfect, the best I can be. And part of it was, yeah, like, the the actual physical you know, effects that you can have on putting your body through certain pain. It's like there's a reason you hear about people cutting <laughs> themselves or like, you know, certain things that happen. It's like right. there is something chemically that goes on in your body and I get it, you know. Yeah. Just knowing when you're doing that I think is key. Totally. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really grateful for the consciousness that I use towards that too. Yeah. And it's just because – um you know, I am like pretty active with my lifestyle and stuff. I feel like it's really caused me to be a lot more conscious in those times where I'm just like, it's okay to just rest a little bit extra Mm -hmm. today and take, you know, and I've developed more practices over the years that have allowed me to just deal with stress and cope with stress a little bit differently, which I'm really grateful for. And I think that's something that I wish there was more education in a, about. Like, I wish there was more education for that, um, especially for people in their 20s. And I feel like mm-hmm. if you do seek it, it is something that is available to you. And there are, like, different people that you can connect with. And ev- the great thing is is that social media can connect us to a lot of different people that are yeah. achieving different results, which we may be more attracted to than some other people. And it allows us to see them living their life on a daily basis and what's helping them get through their day or what they find positive or what they find happy and or what makes them happy. Just all of that stuff. It's It's really nice that we have exposure to that. And um, I think as long as we pursue those things and realize that our overall health does encompass mental health and dealing with stress, that there are more um, proactive ways to deal with stress or there are healthier ways to deal with stress at times maybe than other things. And um I do think yoga and meditation has its place, but there's a lot of other things that can serve as meditation rather than just sitting on the floor in lotus pose with your right. eyes closed and like humming and stuff. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that's not some people, their meditation is, you know, riding horses or, yeah. or taking like, a walk or, yeah, or painting or um, whatever their line of work may be just yeah. really focusing in and um, putting all of their energy towards something that's positive. I feel like is, Everybody has a different meditation that yeah. works for them and just being able to celebrate that, see that in other people that are um, making that happen is beautiful from my perspective. But what do you think is something that is your meditation? Gosh, you know, I this is an area that I am striving to improve on <laughs> because I... Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, right. I think um, because like I said earlier, when I, I grew up in such a like super Christian household, I guess, in quotes, because they said they were, but then their actions were so different. So it was very confusing for me. So I immediately got this bad idea of what God was or what any sort of higher power was. And that was the only thing I could associate with meditation was like God and church and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And I didn't realize until I was older that it doesn't have to be like that at oh, all. No, yeah. No. <laughs> and so in the beginning, I think I was really like the first time I was like, fine, I'll go to yoga. Like a couple years ago, I was so resistant, but I finally went and I was pleasantly surprised. I was like, okay, they didn't even talk about God. <laughs> like, I don't know why. I thought people were praying the whole oh, time. No. <laughs> and so it 
was really cool yeah. and and I um I felt really good about it and everybody was very calm and very positive and you know it was like wow I could see myself going back to do something like this and so um that is something actually I would like to start doing again because I haven't with school and work I hadn't gotten into it in a little bit but um, as far as answering your question with the, gosh, what I about cooking though. Is I cooking do. Kind of I think it yeah. is. Yeah. Because when I, uh, cooking and gardening, like mm. those two things, I know yeah. they sound so silly, but, um, when I get really into those things, like that's all I'm focusing on. And sometimes like I will push aside other chores that need to be done because I would so much rather do that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't even I don't think, think it's silly. So I mean, gardening is connecting with the earth. Like, I love it. It's beautiful. And it's a little challenging, you know, got to yeah. figure out what kind of plants are good for what kind of, you know, area and mm-hmm. how much sun and blah, 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 how much water. And I'm currently dealing with how to deal with pests when you don't want to kill them and you're doing organic and, you know. Cayenne pepper I've seen to be, like, pretty effective. Yeah. Like, I don't think it harms them. I but hope it, keeps it them doesn't. Away. Yeah, like, or, like, chili flakes, just stuff that's kind of... Spicy. Yeah, a little bit irritating, like, doesn't encourage them to come, you know <laughs> what I mean? I'm, oh, my gosh, I can just picture my caterpillar sneezing. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> I think that's actually what I'm going to try next because I've been really avoiding, like, doing any sort of harsh yeah. chemicals because yeah. I don't want to kill them. I just yeah. want them to stop eating my plants <laughs> right yeah but yeah i do i really like it it's kind of like my little project right now so aside from cooking mm-hmm. but so. it's beautiful to grow a garden i encourage anybody even if you can just do like indoor herbs and like stuff just to, like <laughs> see something grow yeah like, any type of connection to nature for me i feel like is always a really really positive thing and it just it helps me kind of clear out anything that i might even be thinking about and i'm like whoa the universe is pretty cool yeah i think one of the most rewarding plants for me has been like jalapenos because they're really easy to grow like a lot of things don't eat it and it's cool watching it go from like flower to pepper like when you first see the flower and you're like yeah it's doing good enough to i know there's going to be a pepper coming as long Mm -hmm. as the plant doesn't get stressed out and then you see the little tiny pepper come out and like the flower dries up and i think for me that was because they they also produce quickly too so you're not waiting around like for a lemon tree to grow out of a seed or something right which i actually did oh, do yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i still have they're growing in my backyard yeah. but um yeah the i think that if anybody's gonna just get started in gardening i would recommend peppers because they're they're fairly easy and they grow fairly quickly and so it's kind of fun to watch the process and they're like three dollars at home depot right now for an organic one so <laughs> i would recommend them <laughs> good for salsa well yeah. i think just like the jalapeno blooms yeah. comes through like you've You've gone through that journey in your life, you know, you've been the seed that's had to figure out, you know, like come through all the soil and deal with the storms and stuff that may have come in your life and take the good from it, take the sunshine, take the water and um, bloom and give fruit from what you've learned and what you've experienced in your life. And yeah. it's facet. Yeah, I was going to say little pepper fruit. Yes. <laughs> yes. But I'm I'm really happy that I was able to share space with you today. Me too. And Thank that you. you're able to share your journey with everybody and be so open and honest with everything that we talked about. And I look forward to having you on again soon. Yay. Is thank there, you so much. You're welcome. Is there anything else you'd like to share like with the youth in regards to growing up and insecurity and like what advice would you give? 
I think my biggest advice would be turn off your phone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because like we talked about earlier, we're constantly comparing ourselves. And I felt like the one advantage that I had when I lost everything was that my phone was included in those things. Mm-hmm. And even though, yes, there are people in real life, but the fact of the matter is that the average person walking down the street doesn't look like the photoshopped fake boob, you know, Barbie doll. It's like you see normal average people and paying attention to that rather than having your face like smashed into a phone all the time is like I think it's probably one of the best things for people like just learn to appreciate yourself and the people around you and you know not not all those looks are gonna last that long anyway so (laughs) (laughs) thank you for tuning in to vibrant raw living remember that you are just as worthy deserving and capable of achieving and maintaining your dreams as much as anyone else If you have found this podcast useful, please subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and share it with your friends and family. You can find links to my Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Pinterest, and Snapchat in the show notes below. And if you'd like to follow me for updates, which I only share via email, come on over to my website at victoriamadian.com. I love you and I'm wishing you a wonderful day. Go out there and discover your infinite potential. The Specialty Produce app is the world's number one handheld resource on produce. The app features photographs, recipes, geography and history, taste and culinary applications on over 1,900 produce items. From apples to zapote, we've got your produce questions answered. Our app is available for both iPhone and Android. Download our app for free today.